This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. I don't know about you, but I've gardened in a wide, really wide variety of circumstances. Some lovely and scenic, some not so much. From a 35-foot fifth-wheel trailer moving across the country with container gardens getting pulled in and out at each location, to a ridgetop lodge home with old-growth ponderosa pines, sweeping views of the Rocky Mountains, voracious deer, and startling rattlesnakes, to the modest but very homey, odd suburban lot I garden on now. I feel pretty confident in saying that in my experience, no home and garden are completely perfect. And yet, they are all just right. Author and gardener Marianne Wilburn seems to come from the same school of thought and experience. Marianne is a master gardener and gardening columnist working under the name of Small Town Gardener. She is the author of a new book out from Skyhorse Press entitled Big Dreams, Small Gardens. She joins us today via Skype from her mid-Atlantic home and garden to share more. Welcome, Marianne. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Jennifer. It's great to be with you. I love to start with early influences, and your your book talks about them a little bit. And there is a lovely dedication to your father and your mother uh, regarding the book and their influence on you. Give us a little bit about your history becoming a garden and plant person, Marianne. I also was from Northern California uh, in Tuolumne County area, and my parents were mainly vegetable gardeners. They had a thriving vegetable garden. It kept them alive during my dad's time in school, and it was just always a part of our lives. They did some ornamental gardening, but not a lot, and uh, it it was something that I came to later as friends influenced me. Mm-hmm. Particularly one influence was a friend of my parents who had extremely ambitious dreams for his garden. My parents gardened so differently and they saw it much more as a subsistence thing and he saw it much more as an artist's palette. Mm. And... Uh, I, I was fairly young at that time, but as I grew up, I started to understand that connection with creating art out in the garden. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I didn't really start my gardening where you do it for yourself and not because you're being made to do it <laughs> until, I, in, <laughs> until I was uh, in my very, very early 20s and my husband and I were renting, uh, renting places. Uh, but those those were always very steady influences. You just gardened. That's what you did, uh, it, whether it was for food uh, or whether it was for a beautiful flower, something of something to treasure. It is funny that, um, you know, growing up with gardeners and then you become an adult and you realize you do get a garden when you want and why you want. And it's a it's a beautiful, beautiful, liberating moment. Um, yes. So you, in the book, talk quite a bit about your different gardening experiences, and you've had a lot of them. And there is some very honest 
uh, personal sharing that you do in the the preface and the introduction. Walk readers through some of your gardening experiences prior to this home garden. Well, I think that my very, very first garden was a what is sometimes called a hell strip or a yes. <laughs> sort of a, 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 a small hell strip, about two by 17 feet in a Pasadena uh, garden. We were, well, it wasn't a garden. We were renting the little, what they used to call the mother-in-law cottage mm-hmm. behind the big house. And there was a, everything was paved except for this one little space against a wall. And again, we were in our early twenties and I wanted some vegetables there. And I asked the landlord if that would be okay, and he was extremely surprised, but um, I think he thought I should be doing other things in my (laughs) early 20s than gardening. Um, But uh, I went ahead and planted, and we had spinach, and we had tomatoes, and we had zucchini, and we had all these wonderful things. And I've always liked to cook, and so cooking those and, and preparing those for friends, for my husband, it was so satisfying. And so I started to work a little bit more on the, I, in air quotes, garden around the cottage there and pruning the roses and, and telling the people who were coming to, to prune them, please, no, let me do it. Mm-hmm. And I started to take off from there. And when we moved out of that place, we moved over to uh, England to go to school. And uh, there I had... I had window boxes and I had pots outside my front door because we couldn't afford a garden flat. And so we used those uh, to bring a little bit of beauty to our lives. And, and, you know, they were occasionally stolen, the pots themselves. (laughs) Um, We had uh, with the, with the window boxes, my son was born in England and uh, when I was pregnant with him, I told, he was a summer baby, so I told my, my husband, okay, we're going to put some hyacinth bulbs into the window boxes. We're going to do pink and blue, and whichever one comes up first, that's what we're going to have, a boy or a girl. And sure enough, the blue ones came up. Oh, I love it. So, <laughs> so, so we did it again when we moved back to the U.S. and we were in the Mid-Atlantic when my daughter was, when I was expecting my daughter, we did it again just for fun. And the pink ones came up. So I highly recommend this for those who <laughs> cannot afford a scan. To just um, do the, the hyacinth bulb method. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a bit like the old pregnancy test with the rabbit. But right. Yeah. <laughs> but we but the hyacinth get, lives, right? Yes, the right. hyacinths live, yeah, and they were they were embellished with other plants around them. But, uh, they, you know, even when we couldn't have a proper garden, it was just a small connection. Yeah. It was just a little one. Uh, we went from there, that garden, to a rental house in, uh, in, the, in the Mid-Atlantic in Maryland. And I just, I had, I think, maybe a quarter of an acre. Uh, at the most, it couldn't have been, uh, it maybe wasn't even that. And there had been a pool there at one time. The worst earth in the world is the bedding of a pool. And uh, I just went to town on that and uh, just landscaped as much as I possibly could. And I know at the time, people that I was meeting, new friends at that time, they felt like, why are you doing this? Why are you, you don't own this place. Right. Uh, but it it was instinctive to me. I had to do it. Yeah. And it became more as as 
as you got older, as I got older, it, it became, I have to do this. This is part of the nesting process, that nesting process, digging in those roots. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then when we moved into, uh, we finally bought a house and, uh, unfortunately about a year after we bought the house and it was on this wonderful acre in the countryside and it was a bit run down, but we worked on it and loved it. And then my husband was laid off and he remained laid off for about a year. Uh, the, the economy was terrible at that time and we went into what we call our wilderness year. Uh, and I, I spent a great deal of time in the garden. Uh, and it, that sustained me and actually sustained us with vegetables as well yeah. <laughs> at that time. Uh, so uh, that when we, we were forced to sell that house, and luckily we were able to sell it, uh, and about six, seven, eight months later, my husband found another job, and we moved into a little town in Maryland and found another little rundown house, but this time in the middle of a town. And not a lot of gardening going on in that town. Uh, but again, it wasn't something I really had to think about. It was something that needed to be done. Um, it was part of that process, that nesting process. Mm -hmm. And so I started there. And we really, truly believed that we wouldn't be there for more than three or four years. We were just going to circle the wagons, you know, get back up on our feet again, get a bit of um, bit more saved, and then we would we would find the land that we'd lost. And that's not what happened. You know, the economy was still very, very poor. And we we had to stay there. So, had I had I not gardened, had I not claimed that space, created that garden, uh, we would have been there for ten years without an outside life. Mm. And I think that's it. It's so important, and it's it's so it, it's becoming increasingly important as our lives are are becoming less connected to the soil yeah. and and digitized and virtual and our houses become bigger and our land becomes smaller and so yeah it's very very important so what years were those marianne well uh, let's see we moved to back to the u.s in 2001 and my husband was laid off about a month before 9-11 mm -hmm. because it was my daughter's due date and um, I, so I remember and uh, that was about a year we were about just over a year moved into the house uh, in Brunswick in 2003 or 2002 mm -hmm. somewhere in there and the market went you know the market started going up very very quickly uh, but well, that's the problem. The market goes up and you can't afford to get in on that market. Right. And I know there were so many people at that time feeling like, uh, you know, they want land, but they can't afford land. And I, at that time, I started writing again. And I pitched a garden column to a local newspaper and they, and they took it. And as that went on, and that column went on, I found that so many in my readership were in the same situation because yeah. I would get emails from people saying, 
you know, I can't really do this and I don't even know why to try here and I live on a hill or I've got a neighbor that I hate and all these different things. And my message was just do it anyway. Mm-hmm. Do it anyway, because it's for you, and you'll see how that ripples into the universe. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. As any of the world's wisdom traditions teach and remind us, it's not about where you are. It's about the mindset you bring to that place that makes a difference. This is as true in the garden as anywhere else. While some gardening environments are admittedly less perfect than others, there's still much beauty and meaning to be cultivated and gleaned wherever you might be. This is the basic premise of gardener and writer Marianne Wilburn's new book, Big Dreams, Small Garden. We're speaking with her today, and we'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with gardener and writer Marianne Wilburn. She joins us today to share more about the personal journey that led to her new book, Big Dreams, Small Garden, out now from Skyhorse Press. Welcome back. It's so true, and and this is one of the things that really resonated with me about this book. Uh, we, uh, my family, was in very similar circumstances through that time period, and um, you know the loss of a house, the short sale, a foreclosure. These kinds of things are are brutal, and yet that resilience that we find in the garden and that the garden we can kind of lean into it, and it gives back no matter how small it is. And I know for many people that I profiled in this book, because I wanted to bring a smattering of people in different circumstances into the pages of this book to Mm -hmm. give real life examples for people. Many of those people, that that's exactly how they felt about the garden, that it was a a precious uh, um, treasure to them. Uh, It it gave them purpose Mm -hmm. when life uh, perhaps was was very difficult and and created home yeah created a sense of home when maybe a sense of home was hard to find we were living on a coast that we you know we'd never lived on the east coast before we didn't have any friends out here we uh had a, a my brother-in-law lived about a, an hour and a half away but that was it uh, all of our family in California. We'd just been in England for four years, and and that creating a sense of place for yourself for your family is so important. Yeah. So, and, and the garden is so resilient. And I think through seeing how resilient the garden is, year after year, season after season, it puts perspective on our journey on this earth, and makes us realize a little bit that. You know, these these things, these hits that we get, these sometimes these gut punches, that it's not forever. Yeah. That brings me um, to the book and, and where I was hoping to go next, and we're, we're already headed in that direction. I would love you to talk about the prologue, because the prologue has... <laughs> just a beautiful message to to all of us no matter how big or how small our gardens are it touches on a really sort of ugly part of human nature that um if we're good and we hear it the garden helps us get the hell over ourselves <laughs> yes yes it's a bit tongue in cheek 
I admit. Uh, however, there's a lot of truth in it. Yeah. Uh, as a garden writer, um, as a columnist, my job, what part of my job is to tour a lot of gardens, to see uh, what other people are doing, different ideas, uh, see how plants are faring, different combinations. And in that, uh, the course of that work, I see a lot of what you could term 1% gardens, you know, the, the, the gardens of the very, very wealthy. And uh, some of them are exceptionally fine gardens with exceptionally fine gardeners at their head. And some of them are just wealthy gardeners with a, a gardens with a staff of gardeners. <laughs> and in while I'm doing this, while I'm touring these gardens, I'm writing for a readership that, like myself, does not have access to the either the land or the resources to uh, to garden that land. You know, the staff. Yeah, not and a lot of staff going on. <laughs> not there. <laughs> there is less than none. Right. <laughs> staff, um, and the. The difference between those two worlds uh, is sometimes difficult for me as a human being because we all have dreams. Just because we have a little more money doesn't mean we have better dreams. It just means we have the ability to implement them. And so it, as we, you know, when, when we're in our early 20s, I think, uh, and, and late teens, early 20s, maybe even late 20s, there's still so much potential ahead. So if you don't have a lot of money, you feel like, well, by the time I'm 35, right. you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be in that place. You know, I, I, and my children do it now, too. My, my daughter was just talking about going to school out of state, and I started to put my pursed lips together, and, and she's 16. And I said, uh, you know, darling, you're not going to be able to pay for that very easily. And she said, oh, mom, I'll be rich by then. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, this is not very different than the rest of us. We all sort of feel like some day there'll be resources. But as time goes on, and perhaps those are not working out exactly as you thought, uh, and then you see perhaps uh, your, the, what you wanted to give to your children in terms of education or land, especially land, because my 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 uh, husband and I grew up with land and that uh, that's very difficult and you think oh, I can't give this to my kids so you can get to a place of of envy and it's a really dark emotion it's not a good one mm-hmm. uh, and it can really take over your life uh, it can stop you in your tracks for what you're trying to achieve I can't do that that person can but I can't, and and you and it just it blacks out every possibility, every creative impulse, yeah. because it's not as good as what they're doing. Yeah. So the prologue was intended to sort of say, okay, look, there are better gardens out there. There are gardeners out there, better gardeners out there. But I can fo- and I can focus on that. I can focus on their resources, their staff their land, uh, I can focus on all of those things, or I can look at what they're doing, what they're achieving, and try and adapt it to my own circumstances right now, and not let that 
not let that feeling of envy stop me from creating something good right now. Because when we let go of those emotions, I truly, truly believe, and I'm no self, I'm not Dr. Phil, but I do, I, I do think that when we let go of those emotions, we open up the door to greater opportunities. Mm-hmm. We don't know what those are going to be, but that positive energy really helps us. And, and that's certainly true for me. My garden brought so much into my life. It brought my gardening column. It brought a great deal of friends. It brought contacts in the gardening industry. All these things that I never would have thought of and certainly would not have experienced if I'd just said, this is not a good space and I can't garden here. It doesn't matter who you are. Like You could be the White House and think, gah, Prince Charles has a much better garden than me. And, you know, so it, like there's this, there's no end to that scale. And the, the point is that it's your garden and you get the say and it gets to look like what you want to whatever extent you can make it. And that is really fun. I just yes, love I love that. There's such ownership in a garden, mm-hmm. yeah. so, such a sense of, of personality. Uh, that's why I'm always trying to get people to exert their own personality. I was I was speaking to a group about four or five weeks ago, and one of the women in the front uh, raised her hand and said, "What? Um, can you tell me what people are sort of planting right now? Uh, you know, what what would be good for me to plant?" And you know, my heart breaks, and it also you know it's an opportunity, but it's also oh gosh, darling, don't don't do what other people are doing. Do what makes you happy. Get out of there into that garden center and look at the plants that just speak to you Mm -hmm. and get those in your garden. It does not need to be like somebody else's because the minute you start comparing it, you you are going to lose 100%. I promise you because you're right. You're at the White House and high grove is better. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of covers the catalyst for the book. And talk about the the way you've structured it. I really love the pull-out profiles of different people in different circumstances. The book is structured in four sections. And it's to help people visualize all of the things about the dreaming and, and figure out what your, what's limiting you there, what your obstacles are, and really being very aware of your obstacles, not trying to push them aside, but but facing them. And then the second section is on achieving that but through the planning process, through the design process. The third section, that's the dum-dum-dum section, that's the maintenance, because we have to maintain these gardens. We have to take care of them, and that is left out in many, many books. It's all the one, two, three, this is fun. So that's some strategies for helping you cope, and more importantly, for helping you structure your garden to your life, that balance, trying to to maintain and keep that balance. Because it doesn't matter if you have a beautiful garden if you are too stressed out to enjoy it. So that's what the third section is about. And the fourth section, which is almost the most important, is actually enjoying it. (laughs) And some, again, strategies for doing that. Because I know, I remember a woman uh, years ago that I, I used to work on her horse farm 
And she had a 200-acre farm that I would have given my eye teeth for. But she was always so busy that she said that the deck that they'd put on their house had rotted away after 15 years before she'd ever really got a chance to enjoy it. <laughs> and they had just rebuilt the deck, and she was trying to make sure that she enjoyed this deck. And I thought, my gosh, you know, from my outside, I'm looking at your life and thinking it's perfect. But on the inside, she's too busy to actually enjoy the garden. So uh, that's why I have that fourth section. But yeah. throughout, throughout the book, I wanted to put into place gardeners that came from very different backgrounds that all had um, something that my readers might be struggling with or dealing with and that's how I chose them for instance uh, Sheila Kasani and Matthew Younger they are in Oakland California mm -hmm. and they rent uh, very much this actually reminded me a great deal of my husband and I back in early days in Pasadena they rent a little cottage behind a larger house in Oakland and Sheila is third generation uh, maybe even fourth generation, I'm trying to remember, Oak, uh, from Oakland. And uh, the Bay Area is almost untouchable for land yeah. uh, if you're young. And even if you're old. <laughs> even, if, yes, even if you're old. You know, that, that magical number of 35, you know, you still don't have it then. <laughs> and uh, so they have created this little urban farm there. And it's rented. And this was, the, having a rented garden as a profile in my book was so important to me because mm -hmm. so many people feel, why bother? Mm -hmm. You're renting it. And yet so many of us find ourselves in rental situations for longer than we expected. So finding this couple and sharing their story and what they've done on this little piece of property and the oasis that they have created for their friends and for their family, uh, and for their chickens, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was it was fantastic to find them. And they actually were expecting their first uh, baby when uh, when I interviewed them, and they're well in that first year with her. So that's exciting. But yeah. uh, a rented garden is important. I think people forget that we really can do things uh, to make some place home yeah. for a while. Yeah. And there's others. Uh, I know one of the gardeners that was closer to me uh, here in, in the Mid-Atlantic in Maryland uh, were, was the, the garden of Jerry Kayford and, and uh, uh, Karen Birch. And Jerry suffered a very long layoff, two years looking for work during that time period that uh, I think it, just after 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. And he's highly educated and he'd had a good job. He was laid off and work was hard to find. And during that time period, he put his energy not only in searching for a job, but also into this place that they call home, creating this garden creating, um, re restoring the house and having to do so on a very tight, tight budget. But one of the things that Jerry said to me that really resonated was that when the world didn't want what he had to offer, his garden did. 
it gave him a sense of purpose. It gave him a, a sense of place. And that was really profound yeah. <laughs> because a lot of people are dealing with that. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the a family affair because this one made me want to just kind of go, yes. Yes, this is actually truly what a pleasure to to talk to Stephen and to hear about his garden. I actually met Stephen through a garden writers uh, convention, and he uh, is a very soft-spoken, very mild man. He lives in uh, Canada. He has three children, and his eldest daughter, Emma, is doing a blog on gardening for children. He wrote a book called Gardening for Children, and he lives that life. He doesn't just say, we need to get those kids in the garden, get them out there, and then leaves it there, and they lived happily ever after. He models that life for his kids, and this is one of the most important things that we can give our kids. Even if we're not gardeners, giving them a sense of purpose in our family unit is is so incredibly important. And he does that through the garden with his kids. When he's out there, they're out there. He models that. And I mean, this is a, this is a, this is a discussion everybody's having right now with you. Why are children being so lazy? Why don't they get outside? Why don't you have this? We're asking those questions and then we're handing our children incredibly distracting devices that we have a problem with as adults mm-hmm. to to limit our time. And we give them to these minds that are not fully formed and we ask them to to be able to manage their time efficiently and not want to just gel out in front of the television or in front of the iPhone or in front of Snapchat. Uh, we want it to just happen. You need to go outside and do some work. But it, it goes beyond that. And Stephen really models that uh, in, in that profile. He, his daughter, Emma, is now taken over his tomato patch, his precious tomato patch. And it is, a, it's, it is a, a purpose for her to grow as many tomatoes as she can and blog about all the different ways that she's done it, and the different methods that she's used. And uh, it's just, it's, it's a very, very neat life. These kids are, are learning purpose. And they are also learning empowerment because empowerment. You, 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 you do this with your kids and they are, you know, we are amazed when we go out and something grows and we can pick a flower or the spinach that you grew as a 20-something and you fix it for dinner and it feels great. And when your kids do it, it's so equally true. And I, I love this, that her goal is to grow 1,000. Yeah. Tomatoes. Yeah. yeah. And he, he was a little hesitant to give over this precious part of his garden, but he was like, ah, I got to do this. It's the right thing to do as a parent. And it totally paid off. And it's just, it's a great, happy photo of him and the three kids. And I think she is blogging for anyone that might want to look at growgardeners.com. Terrific URL. He was maybe not struggling as much as the rest of us with the idea to give over something. But as as parents, we do struggle with that. It's easier to do it ourselves. Right. Or to tell them exactly how to do it. Our, our I think 
this probably is one of my favorite chapters in the book, uh, chapter 11, because I, I just want to get it across that it's not easy. This is probably the toughest part of parenting is making our kids part of our family units, but making them, making them part of it, not just kids along for the ride. You know, can I have some more money? Can I have some more clothes? Can I have another device? But kids who are actually purposefully helping the family unit, because that moves on into our communities and that moves on into our world, giving them power and purpose. And it's a hard job. It's 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 hard on it's hard for me. It's not an easy thing every day. You know, kids don't necessarily jump out of bed in the morning and say, hey, mom, where can I work today? <laughs> if you give them that and, and you take the time to make sure they're doing it, they become more and more self-sufficient yeah. so that they don't need you. It does, in the end, pay off for you. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today, we're speaking with Marianne Wilburn, gardener and author. Her book, Big Dreams, Small Gardens, encourages all of us, no matter where we might find ourselves, to visualize, achieve, maintain, and enjoy your, quote, perfect garden, even if you're living in an imperfect space. We'll be back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with gardener and writer Marianne Wilburn. She joins us today to share more about the personal journey that led to her new book, Big Dreams, Small Gardens, out now from Skyhorse Press. Welcome back. I, I'm imagining your the, the first house you were describing in the small town where not a lot of gardening was going on. And the, when, when you described that, and I was thinking of your garden starting to grow and bloom around this house in this little town where not a lot of gardening went on, and just the impact of that for people driving by, for people walking by to see a little garden coming to life and go, wait a second, I could do that. I, I, want, I want my garden to look more like that. And that ripple effect is so powerful from our kids to our communities, from our gardens to our communities. It just, it supports and helps everything. It does. Uh, it brings a sense of place to a community. Yeah. A community garden sitting yeah. on the corner of an empty lot. As you drive by that, you realize there's people out there gardening for the community and making their community a better place. And, right. and maybe you can be a part of it. If it was just still an abandoned lot, you wouldn't even be thinking about it. But it's a ripple effect, and it's also like a domino thing. You mm -hmm. hit a domino, and it goes off, and you don't know where it's going to end. Right. And it's uh, not its not like it's rocket science. I just I feel like, you know, and it's its clear other people are doing this and, and speaking about it and, and supporting it. But it's something I, I just feel like the more we articulate it, the more people, more people hear it. Yes, a lot of people will say to me, I don't garden, I have a black thumb, or I don't have a green thumb, like it is, like it's something you're born with. Right. Now, you, you may have the desire, you may be born with a desire to garden, you may not. I wouldn't have thought it when I was 10 that I was going to be a garden writer. Uh, but I think that we all have some innate desire to create. And 
in some way. And the garden, if you think about it as, as just creating life in a way around you instead of it's green, I kill it. It's, it's you know, <laughs> paint, whether you're painting with flowers or what have you, looking at, I think a lot of people look at it as yard work rather than a garden life yeah and when you start to change your perspective about how you're looking at it uh, your abilities I think start to change a little bit too yeah definitely so now I want to get to one of my other favorite chapters in the book and that is the section on balance Ah. and the hard truths because this is that that this is that part of the movie or the book that's after they get married and live happily ever after so let's let's walk through the hard truths because they are they're great and they especially for for maybe young or beginning gardeners and we can begin gardening anytime in life these are really good things to hear just things to keep in mind so that we have realistic expectations and don't get defeated too quickly. Yes, it, it wasn't a question of finger wagging, not at all. Right. The, these are here to help us look very sharply at our life and our gardens and decide if those two things are in balance. And if they're not, then to make changes. Uh, the very first one, there, there's never going to be a time when I'm completely finished. That's just a full, you just have to absorb that from the beginning. Otherwise, you're going to be on a treadmill uh, and it's not going to be fun. You're going to be like a little hamster on a wheel. <laughs> and yeah, and it, it just will not be fun. So we have to get an idea of how much time in the very beginning am I willing to put into this? What? How much time do I have? Maybe not how much am I willing to do, but how much time do I physically have? If you have only a half an hour in the mornings, then your garden needs to reflect that uh, so that you don't always feel like you're behind the eight ball. If you have four hours a day, then your garden can reflect that. It doesn't mean that your garden has to be less beautiful. It just means that the scope of it needs to be more manageable. I think the most, uh, the judgiest, uh, you could say, of my of my harsh, harsh truths would be whatever I create, I have an obligation to maintain. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people would go, well, you know, who are you to tell me that? But it, it's, again, not about the finger wagging. If we, if we look at our vision for a specific space and we know our vision. So if we're not, com- if we're not realizing that, then, then it, we realize it's too much. The, the example I have is uh, a meadow or an open space. Your neighbor must, might adore lawns, large, big lawns, but you want a meadow, and that's your idea of an open space. And your meadow it, to your neighbor is a horrible, weedy, ugly patch, and it's always going to be, but to you, it's beautiful. So if you take care of that meadow just as you should, you get it going and you you get out there and mow it down twice a year, you know that you're maintaining it in the vision that you had, still a weedy mess to your neighbor, but to you it's beauty. Then things happen and your life gets out of whack and you don't have as much time and trees start to grow up and you know, it's not what it should be, again, to your neighbor, it is and always has been weedy, but now you know that it's not what it's supposed to be. You're having to mow around the little baby 
trees and you can't, it's not the place, it's not the vision that right. you had. And that's what I'm trying to tell people is figure out what your vision is for a specific place and live up to that vision. Don't make it perfect. Just live up to that vision. And if you can't, if you find yourself falling behind, then you, and, and I give a few things about, you know, how do we recognize that in our lives? then something needs to change. Mm -hmm. That's all. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean that you don't have a green thumb. It doesn't mean that you've you know, allowed terrible things to happen in your life so that you can't garden. It means that your life balance has changed right. and we just need to adapt. And the garden allows us to do that, thankfully. Thankfully. Yes, it does, thankfully. And I think the important thing that you're, you're, you're really supporting people in is that idea is it's supposed to be fun. Like, it's hard work. No, no two ways about it. And, you know, you're dirty and you're hot and you're sweaty and there are bugs and spiders and snakes and weeds. But it is fun, oddly enough, and after that description it, it, I just gave. So and these hard truths that you are sharing – help to keep it that way. Because if you have a vision and you can't keep up that vision, and so you walk out the door and you you want one thing, but you're seeing another, then it's just kind of yelling at you. And that is not what we want our gardens to do. No. And actually, I would, I would probably change the word fun to more to enjoyable. Uh, I think when we add, when we put fun out there, it, <laughs> it conjures up for people, this idea that we're, you know, tiptoeing through the tulips and it's parties and all this fun stuff. Uh, I think that at the end of the day, it gives us a strong sense of pleasure and, and enjoyment and satisfaction. Yeah. Just like life, it, ha it has parts of it that are really fun and it has parts of it that are really, really tough. I've got Japanese beetles ravaging my garden right now. Uh, and every morning it's, Oh, you know, <laughs> and yet just last week I was walking through there like I was in paradise on earth. Yeah. You know, it there it comes in waves and just like life, it reflects that for us. So the point is to enjoy it, to ride that roller coaster. But if we find ourselves constantly in this place where, as you said, the garden's yelling at you. Yeah. That, that is making us feel less than all the time. Yeah. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't keep up. And that's where we have to make those changes. And so that's why that chapter, that section was so important to me to make it easier for people. Number four is that I can't just work hard. I also have to work smart. And we all of us have people in our lives, mostly people that we work with, that do not work smart, that they run around in circles. And we don't have that luxury. We don't have that luxury. We have to get out there and work smart with what we have. So I give a few ways of doing that uh, and after that truth. And number five, what works for someone else might not work for me. Very, very important. We've got a lot of messages coming at us these mm -hmm. days with gardening. And a lot of people hold these to be absolute you know, truths and they're pushing them down your throat and somebody else is saying something else and, and new gardeners especially can feel very very confused and if they try something maybe you know there's a huge fad right now for succulents 
for instance. And so everybody's got succulents. I happen to adore succulents. But another person might think, well, I guess I got to grow those. And, and they may not enjoy them. Mm -hmm. You know, growing what you want, it, it may be like heirloom varieties versus hybrid varieties. Everybody tells you you got to grow heirlooms, but maybe there's some hybrids that you really like doing what works for you, not necessarily what works for somebody else. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very, very important. And number six, I think, actually, would probably take care of most of our problems in the garden before they even started, which is to research the plants that we cultivate, To uh, which means basically in terms of size and in terms of needs, high water needs, uh, large sizes that people end up planting right near pathways because they really can't envision them being bigger. Uh, all these uh, aspects of maintenance, you know, a rose going up the side of your house, it's going to need to be trained. It's not just going to sit there on its own. <laughs> Researching those things, uh, not just taking the grower's word for it, but maybe involving yourself in plant communities where people can tell you. I, I belong to a great group here in the D.C. metro area. Uh, that just some incredibly learned people and I throw it out there on the email listserv hey has anybody grown this and 15 answers come back mm -hmm. oh yeah do not yeah <laughs> <laughs> or you can try it but you right. know that type of thing and not a bunch of naysayers others saying that's a fabulous plant and so getting involved in communities helps a lot with that I, I so agree for instance in our area here uh, natives are a big deal, and so there yes. are, are a, a lot of them available. And so you get a ton of good information back from the native plant community if you put the word out. And our climate is such that things tend to grow significantly larger than their tag says. And so if you ask people, you know, how how big exactly did that David Austin rose get in your garden? They, they will be very honest. And so that is that is a very helpful research and social community to, to get involved in. It is. Uh, I, I am constantly telling people, please, please reach out, get involved, even if it's a, just a social media group yeah. on Facebook or what have you. It helps if you have one that you can meet people face to face as well, because there's nothing like being able to share your gardens with other people. But Having plant communities, uh, it, it's just going to enhance your life as a gardener. Don't wait to do that. Get out there and get involved. There is one more, that you're doing a great thing out there. It's not really harsh truth, but sometimes when it gets tough, when the humidity's high, uh, when the heat is making you wonder why you don't live in the Pacific Northwest <laughs> and and the Japanese beetles are ravaging things you have days where you think what am I doing what am I doing out here and just realizing that that very act of being connected to the soil is it's, it's a small thing but it's it, it has a huge effect on ourselves on our families, on our communities, on the world in general, greening up our world is a wonderful thing. And the more connected you are to that garden, the more it helps you in your life be resilient um, and, uh, and, and take the rough with the smooth. It just, it, it, 
it, it constantly patterns that behavior for us. It just helps us. So mm-hmm. when you're having a hard day, step back. Realize we all have hard days out there. You may need to step back for a couple days. Don't dig any holes because you're going to hit rocks <laughs> if you do. <laughs> and realize that uh, you're doing a great thing. And it's worthwhile. It truly is worthwhile. You never know where your garden is going to touch another human being. You never, ever know. And it might be in a very odd way. But if you do that, it ripples out into the universe. Do you have anything else you would like to share, Marianne? Because that was just beautiful. <laughs> I I think we've gone through most of it. I, I, I feel like I just want to get the message out there to people not to wait don't wait it we don't know even what tomorrow is going to bring to us to our lives we don't know how long we're going to be in a certain place we may have grandiose plans and in a week they may come to an end we do not know we have to live uh, where we are we have to nest where we are our gardens can help us do that and we don't have to have the latest furniture. We don't have to have the latest ornamentation or the latest plants. The garden's going to give back to us, and it's going to help us create a sense of place so easily and so miraculously. So don't wait for those joints of yours to get older <laughs> <laughs> and your back to get older, because believe me, even five years makes a difference. Uh, get out there and do it now. Yeah. Do it now. And it, you're only going to benefit from it. And do it small at first, but just do it. Thank you so much for being with us today, Marianne. It has been a great pleasure. Oh, it was lovely to talk to you, Jennifer. Thank you. Marianne is a master gardener and gardening columnist working under the name of Small Town Gardener. She is also the author of a new book out from Skyhorse Press entitled Big Dreams, Small Gardens. She joined us today via Skype from her mid-Atlantic home and garden. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. If you enjoy cultivating place and value these conversations about the things we love and which connect us, please subscribe to Cultivating Place on iTunes or Stitcher. Also, give the podcast a rating and a review at iTunes, or most meaningfully, share it with others who value this level of conversation about these topics as well. Thank you for listening. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our communications coordinator is Casey Gardner. Until next week, Enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.